Welcome to Movie House Sports Psychology, the podcast where we look at your favorite movies and TV shows through the lens of mental health and sports psychology. I'm Dr. Jason Von Steetz, a licensed psychologist specializing in clinical and sports psychology. If you're interested in how psychological principles apply to your favorite fictional characters, this is the podcast for you. Let's get started. Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to another episode of Movie House Sports Psychology. And today we have, uh, we're, we're bringing back another special guest. You remember her from our episode on The Lodge. Today, we're going to talk to Dr. Taylor Neff. She's a clinical psychologist. And let's say she has an honorary degree in horror films. That's not necessarily true. But we're saying that right now. She's a doctor of horror in, in my mind. Taylor, Dr. Taylor, thank you for joining me today. Thank you so much for authentically and not at all at my request to call me the doctor of horrors, or at least to accept it. Uh, I, I, please, no, don't. Um, I hate it. Uh (laughs) Anyway, yes, thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, we're starting a whole new field. Uh, you know, the field of horrorology. There's probably some kind of term out there. We'll, we'll figure it out. You're, or you'll figure it out. You're the doctor. Uh, so today we're going to talk about an old classic that's a favorite of mine, Tales from the Crypt Presents Demon Knight. Uh, I, I wanted to talk about this movie. Usually the guest um, uh, suggests a, a movie or, or is passionate about a movie. Uh, in this case, uh, I threw out some ideas to you. Uh, it, I'm a, a big fan of, of a movie called Demon Knight uh, that, uh, that, that I um, introduced to you. And one of the reasons why I wanted to watch it is because, or show it to you is because very few people remember it or have ever seen it. And I feel like it's very entertaining. I w- saw it when I was a kid. Uh, I think I was in the fifth grade, and um, it has. And I, I loved watching Tales from the Crypt. And I was thinking about it. And I don't know how I watched it because I didn't have HBO, but somehow I figured out a way to watch it, and I loved it. It was funny. It was scary. Um, it had fun characters, and this movie has a lot of over the top horror movie fun that uh, if you love horror movies, uh, I, I hope you'll, you'll like this movie. Uh, but doc, Dr. Taylor Neff, tell me, uh, what is your history with Tales from the Crypt or horror or just like this type of stuff that we're going to talk about today? Yeah, so I, I have the absolute pleasure of this being my first watch of Demon nice. Knight. Um, nice. And I don't, I don't think I did watch any Tales from the Crypt. What I uh, frantically tried to figure out was what was the name of the horror anthology that also was based in this like comic book sort of thing. You know, that is the premise. And it was Creepshow. So I have seen that um, and, and love it. And I think some of the things that I like about it are very similar to what I hear you talk about with Demon Knight and with Tales from the Crypt, right? There's like this over the top um, almost absurd at many times comedic elements. And I was recently talking to a friend about this too, that the relationship between 
horror and comedy has such a long history. Um, and I feel like this movie, and you'd have to tell me if I'm right about this, but with Tales from the Crypt as a series, that I feel like that is a, a good example of that. That like these things have gone hand in hand for a long time. And I think that's one of the things that makes horror as a genre so rich is that it does blend a lot of these other genres and emotional experiences in with them. So this was, I totally agree, a very, very fun movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Tales from the Crypt is, is um, it's based off of a comic book. It, uh, it incorporates a lot of humor. Uh, it has, it, the, the Crypt Keeper introduces each episode or, or introduces this movie and the Crypt Keeper loves to do some, some puns, like have a good fright and um, uh, man, he does so many. It's hard to remember right now. Uh, he would probably say something like "Don't lose your head" and, and things like that. Uh, so there's always there's always a comedic element. And as you were talking about that, I, I thought about how sometimes when I see just a just a, maybe a, a quick scene or a, a screenshot of a horror movie, it can actually look kind of funny if you don't have the context, like the, the first time that I saw the, one of the monsters from the thing, I thought, wow, that looks terrible. That looks really cheesy. Um, you know, there, there's no way that that movie's good. And then, and I've, and I've thought that same thing for lots of really great horror movies. And then when I actually saw the thing and I had the entire context and, you know, before the monster, there's a lot of suspense and, um, there's a lot of buildup. Then when you see it, then it looks really cool and, and really scary. But without that context, a lot of times horror can actually seem really funny and cheesy. Um, so I'm not sure exactly what that means, but uh, but that's just my kind of kind of observation. I mean, I guess maybe with humor. Uh, a, I think Freud said that hu- humor is the buildup of psychological tens- tension and then a release. And mm-hmm. with horror, there's a lot of psychological tension building up. And I'm not really sure what the difference is, like how you would define that difference. Um, but, you know, horror and comedy go together pretty well. And sometimes something that doesn't scare someone can be really funny to, to something else. Um, yeah, I, I love this as a train of thought, um, cause even like what you just said, so much of what we find horrifying is about context. You know, horror mm-hmm. is subjective, especially if we think about it, like in individuals lived experiences, you know, what makes something so horrifying is our personal experiences, our context, our you know, all of that. And and I think that point about like snapshots in a film, it's, it's the same thing. Yeah. We, we find it scary because we've been along for the ride. You know, we've told, we've been told and shown what to expect, what to be afraid of, where the threats are. And that determines a lot of what we feel moment to moment. Um, and yeah, as, as far as humor, humor psychologically goes, you know, their analysts would say that like humor as a psychological defense, you know, people who laugh and I mean, you might say in inappropriate moments or to cope with tension is a mature psychological defense. Ah. You know, humor is a sophisticated way that we cope okay. with painful emotions. So 
again, I, I think the relationship with horror is apt. Yeah. Okay. So you're telling me I was a very mature teenager and uh, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> I've stayed mature throughout the rest of my life so far. So very nice. Right. I hope to not lose that, that's that humor, that, uh, the defense mechanism there. So let me start to introduce the movie. Usually I read an IMDB description. In this case, I felt like the IMDB, IMDB description didn't really cut it because this movie is, um, so unknown, and um, I think people can use a little bit more of a description. So, so I actually found a little bit of a more thorough description um, through Amazon. This is the Amazon DVD description. Uh, DVDs, for those of you who don't know, were these discs that you would put into another machine, and then you could watch a movie. This was before before streaming, before Netflix. I think it stands I have for... one foot in the grave as you say that. <laughs> yeah, I think it stands for digital video disc uh, before there were actual objects instead of, instead of everything just being digital. Uh, let me read the description. A mysterious drifter known as Breaker, played by an actor named William Sadler, possesses the last of seven ancient keys that hold the power to stop the forces of darkness and protect all humanity from ultimate evil. But the human race is safe only so long as Breaker can evade the demonic collector. So the collector is the, the villain's name. He's played by Billy Zane. Okay. Uh, evade the demonic collector who has gathered the other six keys. In his obsessive quest for the key, the Collector rallies an army of ghastly cadavers against Breaker and the inhabitants of a rundown hotel. Armed with automatic weapons, sacred blood, and sadistic humor, Breaker and the strong-willed Geraldine, played by Jada Pinkett Smith, at that time she was Jada Pinkett, must lead the other guests in a gruesome battle against the Collector and his evil horde of ghouls infested with a talented cast thrilling special effects and the crypt keepers deadpan delights demonite delivers diabolical fun and a body of frights so that, <laughs> so that is demonite <laughs> and there's there's a uh, there's plenty to talk about, but first, I guess, uh, and we don't have to go into too much detail, but I just want to say Billy Zane's villain is, oh, man, it's one of my favorite uh, villains. I'll say he's one of the great underappreciated villains. Um, uh, people who have actually seen this movie, if you look at YouTube comments and stuff like that, they love his performance and consider it like his best performance ever. And uh, it, it, you can see he's just having a ton of fun. And one of his inspirations for the movie was Robin Williams' genie from Aladdin. So he wanted oh, to be... <laughs> that is so good. Yeah. Yeah, he wanted to be sort of like an evil uh, Robin Williams or an evil genie. And he's also kind of like an evil Bugs Bunny. Where it and this might be too old of a reference for a lot of people, but Bugs Bunny was always outsmarting people, 
always pulling all kinds of hijinks and, and just joking the whole time and out, just kind of outwitting people. And um, that's kind of what Billy uh, Zane as the collector does. He's almost pranking people. He's having a ton of fun. He's joking. He's insulting people. Um, so I, I really, I really loved his performance. Uh, but what, what did you think? You've seen lots of villains, lots of horror movies. Uh, what, what do you think about this idea that he could be like an, an evil Robin Williams? And, and how do you feel like that fits into a horror movie? I think that's fantastic. Even the the Bugs Bunny, both of those actually. Mm-hmm. Evil Robin Williams as the genie and then sort of an evil Bugs Bunny. It's such a good fit because he is a very fun villain, almost to the point where you're you're rooting for him. Like there are times where you take delight in the way that he outwits <laughs> yeah. folks and and that's really fun, you know, that that's a compelling character when you can feel that way towards a villain and a villain who is explicitly evil. Like mm-hmm. there's just no mm-hmm. doubt about what his motivations are, but you find yeah. yourself kind of rooting for him anyway. One of my um, one of my my favorite things, just like from a personal joke standpoint, was that I did not know because I'm unfamiliar with this mm-hmm. movie that his character was called the Collector. Mm-hmm. So I took notes as I was watching it because I'm like that and uh i refer to him as cowboy throughout the thing Mm. and somehow like it even just like it it shows just how unserious in many ways his character he's the cowboy he's the trickster cowboy um and he's just so fun to watch uh and i i i love it i adore his character Um, yeah and there are there's so many unforgettable villains and and there are people certainly smarter than me that comment on horror movies and talk about the history of identifying with monsters and villains in horror movies that a lot of people find resonance in these characters for a variety of reasons. And I think there's, there's good in that, you know, it's, it's kind of fun to get in touch with our own aggression, you know, our own desire to outwit people and be a little nasty. And he's a great Avenue (laughs) to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. And, um, and it's funny uh, oh, I wanted to ask you uh, when you were so you've never seen this movie as you were first watching it. How long did it take you to to know that Billy Zane was the bad guy and not our other almost equally dark and creepy hero? Like, wh- wh- did you know right away, or did it take a while? That is that is a great question. I think when even this might be longer than it probably took <laughs> some people, but when Breaker made it to the hotel or maybe his first interaction with Willie, Uncle Willie, where he shows him the key, I think, or he shows him, I can't remember if he showed him that in that interaction, but uh, that was one of my first thoughts. Like you can't tell who the bad guy is, Um, which is also really fun. (laughs) And, and I'll say this, this is going out on a limb here, but Billy Zane's character is more attractive than Ray's character. (laughs) And, And, tells us a bit about our moral history mm-hmm, and how we mm-hmm. associate attractiveness with goodness. And, mm-hmm. and that I think adds to this kind of devil type character um, that casting makes a lot of sense in this, in this film. So it, it took me that long. Do you remember mm-hmm. when you could tell? I'm, I'm not sure. Cause I saw it when I was a, a little kid and I probably shouldn't have even been watching it, but I was watching it anyway. And it might've even been in the theater. So I might have, <laughs> 
thanks dad <laughs> so because my dad would take me to just see movies that i shouldn't have been seeing um and then sometimes it was something like uh, you know um lethal weapon where it's mainly violence and then some nudity here and there and then sometimes it would just like all kinds of stuff but i would i would go see it so so it's it was so long ago that it's hard for me to know for sure um but watching it again, preparing for this, and, and kind of watching it with with fresh eyes, right? because because I was now I was really looking and paying attention. Um, I did notice, like, man, it's hard to tell. I, I think at at first there is a hint that that uh, Breaker is the good guy, just because it seems to be a little bit more from his perspective. And he seems to be struggling more. So then that gives you the, the hint that, oh, he, he's the underdog. Um, and then there is just a little bit of symbolism when after the car crash, uh, uh, the collector emerges from the flames. Like he doesn't really. He walks from out from behind the car crash, but it looks like he's walking out of flames. So there's, yeah. a, there's some symbolism there. Um, but I was realizing like, oh, wow, yeah, you can't. You can't tell for sure until the collector just punches straight through somebody's head. And then oh, you like <laughs> Can we spend twenty minutes talking about that scene? Yeah, it was so good. Scene. Yeah. So much fun. So much fun. And and oh before we talk about that, I just wanted to say uh, we, we talked about how the collector is kind of wacky and he's like Bugs Bunny, but he's really socially intelligent. So when he first comes out of the car crash and he's talking to the other two cops, he's kind of using cop speak. Like he's coming, coming out as an authority and like, listen, gentlemen, uh, this, this um, you know, uh, man that I'm pursuing, he's a dangerous man. And we need, you know, he, he's kind of talking to them as a peer would talk to them. And then they just kind of go with it. They don't even ask him for any identification or anything. They just... Like, oh, well, this, this guy seems kind of like he's one of us, so then we just go with it. And then up until that point, he's staying calm, cool. Um, he's being really nice to people. And Breaker looks really squirrely and suspicious. And, and Breaker's kind of a throwback to an old-timey tough guy. He wears a leather jacket. He has a mm -hmm. butterfly knife. He's got... You know, he's a little bit older in age, so he's a little bit leathery and little, you know, he's just a little bit aged like like a tough guy would look. Uh, so he he seems like, you know, like a crook or like a bad guy. And Billy Zane, he's got the halo effect. Uh, the halo effect is a psychological term where if someone is attractive or has some kind of good quality, we assume they must have other good qualities. Um, and that happens often with attractive people. We think, oh, they must be smart. They must be nice. But really, mm -hmm. they're just tall and attractive. And that's kind of it. Or <laughs> as far as as far as you know, before you get to know them. Um, so uh, the collector has the halo effect. And then finally, when um, things aren't going his way uh, and... Um, and the, the sheriffs or the cops or whatever they are uh, get suspicious of him and are going to bring him into the to the uh, police department or jail or whatever, whatever it's referred to as. Then he says, ah, screw this. Or, or they, 
he says something like, uh, if you knew who I was, you wouldn't be doing this. And the sheriff says, well, we'll find that out soon enough. And uh, the collector says, why wait? Boom! And then punches straight through his head, drags his body around, tears off his head, throws it at the at the deputy, and then chaos and hilarity ensue. Uh, but <laughs> what was it like for you to watch watch that that scene? I was thrilled. I love <laughs> an unrealistic, grotesque death. And I think what was great about that is that he punches through his head and then decapitates him like his head sort of pops right off yeah and the head stays on his fist mm -hmm. it's it's great it's, so good. it's just so yeah it's this insane demonstration of power and violence mm -hmm. and and that's like the first instance of like oh we're in this now mm -hmm. um and yeah you really see his personality and his potential come through in that scene like how big of a threat this guy is yeah, yeah, and then um, and then then he starts showing more of his real personality, where he turns into Robin Williams and is over the top funny. And um, I don't know if I have it in me to quote some of his lines, but he he starts doing a sort of like a, a southern cowboy accent, I guess. And he's he's joking around and make and just kind of really roasting them, make really making fun of them at that point, and. Um, just to sort of set the scene a little bit more, uh, something we find out later on in the movie is that uh, Breaker is holding on to a, a key of some kind. It's like a big bottle sort of shaped in, in the shape of a key, of an, like an old timey key. Um, and it has blood in it. And this blood that he can pour from the key has magical powers and he can seal doorways and windows and things like that. And then demons can't go through it. And he is now trapped in a hotel with uh, seven different people. And, um, and we'll find out later in the movie that uh, sort of his task is, he's sort of like the holder of the key or or he's the demon knight and he has to fight off demons and keep this key that has lots of blood in it safe because once demons get it then the the universe goes back to darkness and demons control everything and he needs to kind of pass this key on to the person who's going to end up being the next demon knight and, uh, and then We'll we'll see how how the rest of that goes, uh, but but what are your thoughts at, at this point? Where you know it's now Breaker and these other seven random people who just happen to be at the hotel. I think I I told you I texted you after I watched the movie mm -hmm. that I said you know what I think this is the Breakfast Club meets Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, yeah. <laughs> and I stand by that. Nice, <laughs> uh, <laughs> and that's how I'm envisioning. It's one mm -hmm. way to look mm -hmm. at this group of largely local misfits. Mm -hmm. You know, they they all have different roles and personalities and kind of societal positions and whatnot, and they're coming together. They're stuck. You know, they're in detention, and mm -hmm. they've got this thing that they got they got to survive. And if that's mm -hmm. not the Breakfast Club, I don't know what is. Yes, that, that, that is a great, uh, great analogy. So it, in Breakfast Club, uh, they, you got uh, all the high school stereotypes, uh, a nerd, a jock, uh, uh, sort a of princess, the princess, 
you have sort of like an emo girl, or I don't know what they would call it back then. Was it God? I think they or? referred to her, and this is an outdated term. We do not support this, but they referred to her as the basket case. The basket case. Okay. Okay. Wow. Yeah. And that's funny because I think uh, maybe around that time or maybe before that, the the word freak was more like um, – Kind of like a cool word. Like there's, there was even a show called Freaks and Geeks. Like if, love if, that show. Yeah. Let's promote that. Yeah, yeah, that's another great, another great show. Yeah. So it was kind of cool. It was a specific thing to be a freak. So um, and then I even know, like my dad, you know, back in the seventies, hung out with the freaks. Uh, at least sometimes um, he was in a band and all that stuff. Um, so I don't know if maybe freaks was a different thing and they didn't want to confuse people or I don't know, might be getting too much into that right now, but, uh, <laughs> but you had all your different high school stereotypes. And then in this movie, Demon Knight, uh, we've got, we've got lots of different sort of archetypes or different, different interesting characters. We have, um, let's see, we have Cordelia, She's sort of the the kind-hearted sex worker. She's she's really nice. She's really sweet. She has her issues. You can see she's she's vulnerable. She's lonely. That kind of thing. She has, I guess, an abusive boyfriend or some some kind of I don't know. Uh, yeah. yeah, it's sort of implied. You know, I I don't know if she's in a relationship, but it's implied that the the relationships that she does have are hurtful to her, are abusive, yeah. are painful. Yeah. Yeah. And then that character's name is Roach and it is a very fitting name. Roach played by, uh, I might be getting his name wrong. I think it's Thomas Hayden church or Hayden Thomas church or something like, something like that, something like that. But he's so pretty much everybody there is actually a really well-known, really good character actor that you've probably seen in a dozen times, dozens of times, and maybe not realized it, but they're all really good character actors. Uh, Thomas Hayden church. He's been in a bunch of stuff. I can't name one of them right now. Uh, Spider-Man. He was in one of the Spider-Man's, uh, Oh yes, he was the Sandman. Yeah, I believe. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So he was in that. People probably know him most from that, at least these days. Uh, but he was like the abusive jerk boyfriend who uh, is going to sell everybody out at any moment. He even throws Cordelia in front of a demon and then runs for his own safety. Uh, and then I'll just kind of go through the different characters real quick. And then there's Wally. He's the the kind of passive seeming mailman who is secretly collecting a bunch of guns and he's going his plan and grenades, <laughs> and, grenades. <laughs> and his plan is to shoot up the post office in cordelia's name i don't like he wrote a letter i don't think cordelia ever asked him to do that but that was his plan to honor cordelia in some way um then we have um um Irene, she is the owner of the hotel. And this hotel used to be a church that doesn't really play in too much other than some church iconography just around the hotel. And it gives it a little bit more of a creepy vibe, just knowing that it's an mm -hmm. old abandoned church that is now kind of like a rundown hotel. Uh, 
And I love that when when Willie is walking breaker to the hotel, Mm -hmm. you know, he's looking for a place to stay. He mentions that it's an old church and and says, well, you know, people lost interest. And so that's why it's not a church anymore, which I think is great. I think it's a fantastic setup. (laughs) Yeah, it is super creepy looking Uh, and kind of makes sense why there would only be like three or four people in the hotel when he first gets there, because it's like, it looks like it's on the edge of a cliff. I don't know if it really is because it's at night, but it looks like it's in a very precarious position. And there's like a really creepy, scary night sky with lightning and stuff. And and there's nothing else around except like dirt. I think it, it takes place in New Mexico out in the desert. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, so it's a very creepy looking location. Uh, so yeah, it makes sense that people would not want to go there uh, every Sunday and, and so on. Uh, but Irene, she's sort of like the captain of her ship. She's really funny. She's cracking jokes. You can tell that she's tough and she has taken in her niece. I, and I don't remember seeing this in the movie, but I just read what, as I was looking stuff up that, uh, Jada Pinkett's character, Jerry line, Jerry line, Jerry line is Irene's niece. But I don't, I didn't hear that at all. Maybe at one point she says, come on, Aunt Irene, but uh, I didn't catch it, but that's, that's what I read online. Uh, and then Jerryline is on work release and she is in, um, uh, she's sort of working at the hotel, but she's very resentful. She doesn't want to be there. She feels like she's being bossed around. And then they do a quick show of her bedroom and she has like a picture of the Eiffel Tower. And then you can see like, the, the hint is that she wants freedom. She wants to get out of this um, creepy hotel and and just travel and have fun. Uh, then, can I uh, can sure. I spoiler real quick? Sure, go ahead. What I what's great about that? Oh gosh, this might be jumping the gun, but I can't help it. Um, <laughs> sure. Jump away. The, the collector Billy Zane, mm-hmm. right? We'll get into this. You know, the yeah. thing that he tempts her with is her freedom and travel. And that she's not going to get it unless she gives in. But she does. And I think it's, it's a wonderful thing to see yeah. like this character sort of like, aha, there's there's more than one way to have your freedom and to travel, which I think yeah. is just really fun. There's a fair yeah. amount of foreshadowing. <laughs> yeah, it's, I know. And then it's not quite the freedom and travel that she wanted because now she's running for the sake of the entire universe. Uh, and I think she probably more just wanted to uh, like sleep in late and, and um, have fun, but it's still, it still is freedom and travel. And while we're talking about it, what's so interesting about this movie. So this movie is, I think from 1995 from a while ago, and there's a, a trope in movies that um, would often, a trope in horror movies that would often happen where the black character would die immediately. Like, it's always like, hey, I'm I'm the black character. And then, boom, they're dead. Like, just, they're the first person yes. to go. That's a well-known trope. And this is another spoiler, but in this movie, there's two black characters, Irene and then Gerilyn. And they both make it really far. And then uh, Jada's uh, character, uh, Gerilyn, is maybe the first uh, black final girl in horror movies, the term final girl girl. That's just what it sounds like that 
the girl who makes it to the to yeah. the end. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> and Jada makes it all the way to the end and lives as far as we know. As far as we know, she's still out there uh, escaping from danger on public transportation and uh, has a, a, a key filled with breakers blood that we'll talk about later. But, uh, yeah, so so that's that was pretty pretty much a, a breakthrough moment in movies. Um, so that, so that's pretty cool because it, it goes mm-hmm. against a lot of tropes. Uh, we haven't mentioned a kid who shows up in the movie at some point. His name's Danny. Usually, kids make it till the end, but this kid uh, actually kills one of the demons and then gets possessed himself. And then he eats yeah. it and gets killed. So, so they're really breaking a lot of rules in this movie. I read. Who knows if this is true because it was Wikipedia. But my understanding is that the script, you know, the idea for this film got passed around to a few directors mm-hmm. before it got actually made. And I think um, not uh, Ernest Dickerson is the director here, but. There was another person that was going to do it whose idea was to have both um, or at least Breaker's character be a black man. And that the idea just to play around with these tropes about like oppressor and oppressed and to have like the savior be a black man, like for this group of people. And and I actually don't know in that iteration if uh, Gerilyn was also going to be black, but. I, I think it's still it still is powerful in that yeah. way that like it's nice to sort of see these characters really early on. I mean, yeah. not, really early, I say ninety five. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we still have a long ways to go, mm-hmm. but uh, yeah, such a such a relatively unknown film be be playing around with these ideas is neat, and of course, it's always uh, this is I shouldn't say always, but it's often. <laughs> some of these like off the rails cult following mm-hmm. type films that are actually doing some really important representation and story work. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's cool. I didn't hear about that. Uh, I heard that originally, or I don't want to say originally, but at some earlier point, uh, maybe the studio or some, some people behind the scenes wanted Cameron Diaz to be the final girl. And Ooh. you know, what a different movie. <laughs> I can't say that would be bad, but it would just be more typical. Uh, so, but so I, I really like the the direction that they that they went in. The, that direction is much more original and uh, and you know just creative and fun fun to watch. Uh, and let me kind of finish up. So we talked about Irene, Gerilyn, Roach, Cordelia, Wally. Oh, and Uncle Willie. Uncle Willie is a character who's sort of like the fun, lovable alcoholic, like you, you like him, but you feel bad for him. And he has, he has some kind of troubled past. Uh, He's, he's often trying to sneak some alcohol and then he gets caught and then he kind of um, relents until later on in the movie. But, Oh, then Uncle Willie is played by um, an actor who's just been in a ton of things. I think he was in Gremlins. He was, I think he was in a bunch of old Westerns. He's just one of those character actors who's done so many different things. You can't even like place it. So that's Uncle Willie. And then Deputy Bob. Deputy Bob, that's just a a funny name itself, Deputy Bob. And he's uh, sort of the comic relief. He's the kind of goofy 
uh, deputy who kind of fumbles around and drops things and and kind of says goofy things sometimes. Uh, but he does he does kind of take a stand and he is resilient and he fights. He's just funny along the way. And then he's played by um, uh, somebody who's now in Reservation Dogs as Uncle Brownie. Uh, and then he's been in lots of kind of indigenous movies and stuff like that. Um, so in my head canon, I don't know if his character is indigenous or not, but that's something that I just kind of think about. Uh, he does go out like a champ, though, so that's pretty cool. But we we haven't got there yet. But uh, so so that's our, our cast of characters for the most part. There's some other side characters, uh, but one of the things you brought up was just the kind of maybe the group dynamics uh, of all these characters sort of being like the breakfast club in a way. Uh, but, but what are your thoughts about them as a, as a group? Yeah. So as, as listeners of the lodge may know already, I am in no way a sports psychologist. And so while this is a movie house, yeah. <laughs> generally touching on themes of sports psychology, I mm-hmm. have nothing to bring to the table, but sure. I am a psychologist. So I can talk about Very that. Good. And, and a doctor and, for yeah, or something, you know. Yeah. Um, and this is a group of people. And so there are certain characteristics of a collection of people that make a group. And these these folks do fit the bill for that, that there is a task. It is clear who is a member of the group and who is not, in some ways, like very explicit as far as doorways go, who is human, mm. who is a demon. Um, there is an actual territory. In this case, it is contained to the hotel. And um, there's a time limit to this. There is a point in time in which the task is completed or the formation of the group will yeah. no longer exist. Um, so that's, that's actually all it takes for a collection of people to be referred to as a group. And what we see is this group going through some typical struggles about how do they manage this task. And Breaker is sort of the obvious choice as a leader um, that he... He is there to usher them through the task of survival, get them through the night, keep the key from the demons. But like many leaders in a group experience, they struggle at first to see him as a leader, to trust that he will hold the group together and they can survive. And for the most part, when the group experiences the threat from the outside, that is enough for them to feel like they have Mm. cohesion. They can work together. With the exception of Roach, mm-hmm. um, who is such a dirtbag in many ways, <laughs> uh, that Roach through and through resists Breaker as a leader, that right. he is kind of the best representation of infighting, of there being tension. Um, and this is for any group, you know, there is a point in time where there's probably going to be some tension. And when there's tension in a group, things fall apart really quickly. Um, if the group cannot maintain a social orientation instead of an individual orientation. And that's exactly, that's Roach's downfall, right? He keeps his focus is on his individual needs and aims, and he cannot shift into a social orientation. What does the group need? What do we all need to survive? And that is not only his own downfall, but it threatens the survival of the group as a whole which he is not particularly interested in in the first place. <laughs> yeah. He would be more interested in the idea of what it costs him. And it does. Right. So, I mean, for 
for everyone out there, for myself, for you, Dr. Von Steetz, um, whenever we're in a group of people, that's kind of the main task is that when we're faced with tension, how do we zoom out enough to find common ground? And the bigger the group, the more complicated the point of tension, the harder that is. You know, we tend to need some help doing that. But the more we can do that, the more we can be in touch with reality, for one. We can regulate our own feelings and we can ultimately function our best within the group. And that's that's something that Roach fails to do throughout the movie is sort of zoom out and see where is our common ground. He just refuses to do that. So that's that's kind of the... You know, they, they fail to come together in the way that The Breakfast Club does, <laughs> to draw that comparison. <laughs> in The Breakfast Club, they recognize we have differences. We mm -hmm. come from different backgrounds. We have different sort of like social labels and whatnot. But we can recognize our common ground, zoom out enough to understand each other's pain. And they have a, a, a redeemed group experience yeah. in that. Um, and, and again, this group does not <laughs> um, as a whole, as a whole, yeah. ultimately, with the exception of Roach, I think they all sort of bind together in different ways. Um, and then and then we get into the Charlie and the Chocolate Factory as well, <laughs> uh, with Gerilyn being the chosen one. Yeah. But that's probably getting ahead of myself, <laughs> as I tend to do. <laughs> that's OK. Um, yeah, I, I think everything that you said pretty much relates to team dynamics, um, you know, a, a sports team or a dance team or even like a, a sales team that needs to all perform together. Uh, they'll all go through that same type of uh, uh, process that you described where they need to find common ground. Um, they need to share a goal and work towards that goal. And if you have, uh, if, if someone is what I think you referred to as a dirtbag, I think that's a clinical term. It's a clinical term. <laughs> Oh gosh, <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that makes it really difficult. Um, uh, so, in to put it in some, I think some more sports psychology terms, um, there's social cohesion. You know, does does a team or a group of people uh, get along well and, and like each other uh, in, in a social way? And and then there's task cohesion. They like can the team work together on a task. And the two things overlap, but they but they are they are separate. And for the most part, with the exception of Roach, they seem to have social cohesion, and they develop it more and more as time goes on. And uh, and they have task cohesion at at different points. Um, with the exception of Roach, he's not necessarily liked by them, and he doesn't have the same goal as them for the most part. Uh, the rest of their their goal, for, for the most part, the rest of them have a shared goal where they all want to survive. They, they for the most part, they each care about each other. They don't want to sell each other out. They, they want to help each other to make it. And then Roach, that's not his goal. His goal isn't for everybody to survive. His goal is for Roach to survive. And he tells them, he makes it really clear to them from the very beginning Um so I guess I can't really call a roach a liar for the most part, uh, but he, he doesn't have task cohesion with them. He can have social cohesion at some points. He, um, you know, he can get along with people, but then when he thinks that it's better off for him to survive alone, he can, he can switch into that gear very quickly. 
Um, so he's in a, in a way he's kind of like the collector where the collector is very socially intelligent and he can act the part when, he, when he's talking to cops, he can act like a cop when he's trying to seduce someone, he can be enticing either as sort of like, um, uh, as, you know, in a flirtatious way or in like a cool, fun way, like the, the way he tries to seduce Uncle Willie by just kind of offering him a party, offering him a good time. But within that party and good time is Uncle Willie's um, weakness, his poison. You know, he's an alcoholic, so he he can be fun. He can be intimidating. He can do all these different things. And Roach does that same kind of thing where he can just kind of act the part in different situations to get to get what he wants, um, but he's not he's not thinking of other people's safety. Um, yeah, this movie has at least two villains. You, know, mm -hmm. you could call all of the demons, I, I suppose, <laughs> villains if you wanted to. Um, you could call their vices, you know, their individual vices, demons or uh, yeah. villains as well. Um, but it's it's so interesting because I don't know if you feel this way, but the the fondness with which we described the collector, I don't feel that way towards Roach's character. Um, and maybe maybe That's you true. actually feel yeah. I don't know if you feel fondly towards him or not, but they're both villains absolutely mm -hmm. in their own right. But Billy Zane is just more fun. He's more yeah. enjoyable. I like him. Yeah. <laughs> um, and Roach. Yeah, you're right. I, I actually hadn't thought about how honest and direct he is about yeah. his motives and his priorities, where the collector, like what he is known for is that he is not honest. He is a genie. He's an evil genie right. in the sense that I will promise you something and there will be a loophole or I just yeah. straight up lie to you. <laughs> and it's almost like it's almost like we prefer that. You know, we like the fantasy. We like the fun of it all. Mm -hmm. uh, but Roach, yeah, easily yeah. unlikable. Yeah, yeah, that, that's true. And because I don't I wouldn't say that I like Roach like um, I wouldn't want to hang out with him. I wouldn't want to hang out with the collector either because that that's that's bad. <laughs> Suit yourself. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> The, the roach is the roach roach is more of a, just a, a typical <laughs> abuser and uh not nearly as fun but I, I will say that he is a crucial part of the movie like you need the you need roach there just kind of messing things up and the collector even says like um i forgot what roach tells him but but the collector even says, like, "Hey, we've been counting on you. Uh, we we were hoping that you were going to turn on them." And then he looks at the demons and says, "Isn't that right, boys?" And then the demons kind of like like almost like giggle and, and nod their heads because uh, one of the things that I noticed. Um, so the collector tempts each person or almost each person. I don't think he ever tempts Deputy Bob, but he pretty much tempts all the different people. Uh, with um, some kind of uh, seduction, he the the collector is really good at figuring out what people's core fears are, or um, you know what they could be tempted by, and then he tries to you know move them over to the dark side. And Roach was never tempted in that way. the uh, The collector never really tried to get into his mind and. Um, seduce him with his greatest wish or anything roach just from the very beginning saw that there was trouble 
heard heard the collector say, just give me the key and then I'll go away. And the roach said, Oh yeah, let's, let's do that. Let's just, let's turn breaker over and give him the key. And you know, if the demons take over the universe, I mean, what are you gonna do about it? You know, that's, that's too bad. So, so yeah, roach, like he, he didn't need to be tempted. He was already over on the dark side from, you know, from the very start. Mm -hmm. It's so simple. I mean, to live life as a roach, if you will, <laughs> would make things so much clearer. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah. we, we know what we want. We go after it, disregard everything yeah. else. What a life. Yeah. <laughs> and then I don't, I don't think we're going to have time to get into like the core fear of each individual character, but um, uh the collector used sort of a, a divide and conquer tactic where he would kind of get into the person's mind. And Cordelia was the first person he took down. Uh, uh, Cordelia and Roach just had, uh, I don't know what to call it, but, but Roach was just abusive to her after he threw her in front of the demon and then ran to safety. Um, you know, then she confronted him and he actually, uh, you know, hit her and she's alone in the room crying and the collector immediately targets her. And um, at that point you can kind of see that Cordelia is lonely and maybe she feels unlovable and maybe she feels she's um, uh, let's just say she feels she's not worthy of being treated well. I don't know if that's the case, but you know, Maybe that's what's going on. Mm -hmm. And then mm -hmm. the collector immediately starts telling her how pretty she is and he would love her so much. And, and if only she just says yes to him. And then, uh, you know, she, she goes over pretty quickly. Uh, but, but what did you think of the collector as, as this kind of, uh, I think the term's incubus or just kind of someone mm -hmm. who like tempts, tempts people? Yeah. I mean, where my mind goes is about, you know, as humans, um, kind of our relationship to our own needs, our own longings, right? Particularly unmet needs, I would say. That I, I think in many ways, like this is what what people can be afraid of, that when they are in touch with their pain, when they're in touch with their longing, that that will be their undoing. It will be used against them. And so not everyone, but there are many people that then struggle to be vulnerable. The lesson is to hide your pain, hide what you are wishing for, hide all of that so that people can't use it to, to take advantage of you. And, and Billy Zane's character is a good example of that. Um, and that, you know, a lot of work in, in therapy for many folks is about rather than sort of stuffing the needs and saying, you're right. That's your that's your weak spot. Don't get in touch with that is to, to understand it more and find healthy ways to meet the needs that, you know, people can get stuck sort of thinking, I don't need to meet my needs. So you, you stuff it, you know, you're not vulnerable or you do the best you can. You try and get those needs met. But there are all these unintended consequences, which maybe that's kind of Billy Zane's temptation It's like here, I'll fulfill all of your desires but it's actually not going to work out the way that you want. And again, as humans, I think we find ourselves in some of our most deeply rooted patterns, some of some of the patterns that we feel shame about, 
because they are so closely connected to what we long for. And then again, we do the best we can. And then it, it, we end up getting hurt or we hurt other people. And it can take a lot to sort of have a healthier relationship to what we want while validating, you know, your suffering is real and it needs some tending yeah. to, but let's find a better way to do that. So that was, that was what I was sure. thinking about this idea of temptation and what does he yeah. go after? Yeah, well said. And sometimes the collector is successful, sometimes not. Um, and I think that has to do with whether or not he can really get to somebody's core fear. Um, when he tempted Irene, the hotel owner, so at some point in the movie, Irene loses an arm um, fighting off fighting off Cordelia. Once Cordelia is possessed and turns into a demon, uh, then Irene is fighting her off and her arm gets torn off. It kind of gets um, hit against a doorway and then just like ripped off. Uh, and the collector tempts her by coming to her with an arm, her arm on a platter. And he says, you know, this, I can make you whole again. You can, you can have your arm back. And then she raises her stump. And then he says, is that a yes? She says, no, that's me giving you the finger. Something, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But she's not, she's not really tempted because, uh, Throughout the movie, once she loses her arm, you don't hear her saying, oh, no, my arm. I just wish I had my arm back. You know, like she's she's really coping with the situation, trying to survive and trying to um, take care of others. She's not thinking mm-hmm. of herself or, or her arm. Um, and then so she's she's not she's not even close to tempted by him. Um, and then afterwards, she does have a great moment where she pulls a. Uh, a Vasquez from Aliens and rips rips off the what are they I forget what they're called but kind of triggers a bunch of grenades and, and blows blows herself up with Deputy Bob uh, so that's a, a cool moment but she's not tempted at all and then Geraldine um, the collector gets closer he kind of he tempts her by putting her into like a nineties. Uh, sort of hip hop R and B music video, essentially. <laughs> that <laughs> is true. Yeah. The music shift was kind of jarring in that moment. <laughs> yeah, or maybe like a, a '90s Gap commercial or some something kind of like that. Yeah, it's yeah. like a like an artist studio type yeah. setting. Yeah. Yeah, I think she's walking into different rooms trying to find Uncle Willie or trying to find someone. And then all of a sudden she steps into this studio and uh, the collector takes on this more seductive, charming tone. And he's talking to her about how she can travel and she can have freedom. And he sees um, there's posters of her up on the wall and like all the cool places she gets to go. And then... And then after he tempts her with that, he then switches to intimidating her and he shows her, you know, an image of, of Breaker being devoured by demons. And he says, he says something like, you don't want to end up like him, do you? Or mm-hmm. something like that. And watching it again, I was noticing she she you don't really know if she took the bait or not, because after yeah. that, yeah, she kind of walks back to the group. And she's kind of dazed and out of it. So you don't really know at that point if she's going to take it. So he does get closer with her, but ultimately she becomes the final girl and he wasn't able to seduce her. 
Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That ambiguity is is really neat because I was going through the same thing, especially yeah. as a first time viewer, that we're so used to seeing in horror movies that person who's turned, you know, but you don't know they've turned. And so there's that suspicion yeah. and paranoia. And they do a nice job building that in that moment. With mm-hmm. the, I think you said it perfectly, the way that she walks out in a daze. Mm-hmm. Like, does that mean she's mind controlled? Does that yeah. mean she's so laser focused? Um, or is she just kind of, you know, taking it all in and deciding how she's going to move on? Yeah. Yeah. But she is not, uh, seduced and she becomes the final girl later. And then I'll just kind of quickly say, I noticed that Deputy Bob didn't get his temptation scene. And I was thinking, oh, what, what would he have been tempted with? And all I can say is that Deputy Bob was kind of comic relief and kind of, uh, fumbling around at times so maybe he would have been tempted by some kind of promise of being like an action star or being like a commando or something really cool and competent like that but then i thought oh but really deputy bob does go out like a champion and he is fighting the whole time he never disgraces himself like roach he's just a, he's just a little funny at times so i thought oh he doesn't need to be tempted because he's living the thing that would have been a temptation for him, possibly. And then Danny, the little boy, they, oh, he's reading a comic book. And you see in the comic book, a demon character's eyes light up. And then you know, mm. oh, Danny's about to get tempted. And then one of the tropes or one of the things that's cool about this movie is it looks like Breaker is actually going to live. Or at the very least, Breaker would be killed by the collector because breakers like the main good guy and the collector is the main bad guy. But then Danny gets possessed and kills breaker, which was just completely surprising and different from, from other movies. So breaker eats it, but before he does, he passes on <laughs> the, the job, the position, the job of demon knight to Jerryline, who then has the mission of killing, um, uh, what's his name? The collector, uh, but uh, what, was your, what were your thoughts about just that ending part uh, that, that I just described? Oh, gosh. I think uh, Danny's demon form is the best one yeah. out, of, out of everyone's. It is mm-hmm. so gross and distorted. And there's something that's just so provocative about children becoming gross, evil monsters. Yeah. Um, so it's always really interesting to see that in in any any movie but horror movies i think do it really well and play with our ideas of innocence and things like that um i don't know that i was as surprised that Mm. breaker died um and and was killed by danny but but i also was surprised that it wasn't the collector you know that i think i had some sort of assumption that like yeah he's gonna um somehow he's not gonna make it out of this but but the, that it was Danny ends up being important for Gerilyn to have the standoff with the collector. Like if if Danny didn't kill Breaker, then that would sort of steal her thunder. Right. Um, which does feel really important. Like she's not just a final girl because she's a survivor, mm-hmm. but she like she doesn't get away, so to right. speak. She also defeats the evil. Right. Um, she gets her fight, which is feels important. Um, from a female character standpoint. Yeah, yeah, she gets the big victory. Uh, they also, they could have had it play out where Breaker 
kills the collector as he's dying or you know, something yeah. like that. Or they could have had it play out where I, I think you pointed out like maybe she's the final girl and then, and then the collector is still after her now, but mm-hmm. that's not how it plays out. Uh, she actually gets the big win where she gets to outsmart and kill the collector who up until that point was, um, I don't, I wanted to say invincible, but he does get hurt several times, but he just keeps coming back. And then this time he didn't get to come back. Uh, uh, Geraldine actually finished him off for good. Um, so that was and really by cool. spitting in his face. Yeah. It's such a cool way <laughs> to mm-hmm. defeat the bad guy, especially, you know, she spat in his face. That was her response. Uh, one of her responses to his attempt at seduction. She spat in his face with spit um but this time she had she had the blood in her mouth and then spat in his face yeah um which i think the way that the collector underestimates her and then tries to overpower her all while objectifying her right that she she still um she sort of takes advantage of that underestimation and yeah. then spits in his face. <laughs> and then I think maybe she spits in his eyes or around his eyes. And yeah. Then maybe that's sort of the connection. They did say that uh, the eye stuff only works on lower level demons, but maybe if it's maybe if it's blood, then it has more effect <laughs> if you if you get it in the eyes. I don't know. But, yeah, if I had to pick one uh, one loophole, because otherwise it's a perfect movie. Um, it would be, I actually didn't understand why that was enough to kill him. <laughs> Maybe I'm dumb. I just didn't get it. <laughs> well, the collector does say, I know who makes up these rules. Yeah, so, that's true. That's so, true. <laughs> so the collector knows he, he knows that, uh, he's vulnerable in certain ways and in some way he's not. And, and he's, he's just out there having fun. You know, he's, he's living his life, killing people, uh, mm. trying to meet a nice girl, a nice demonite, marry her or kill her, bring her back to his folks back in hell. Um, so he's, he's having a blast either way. He, yeah, I guess, I guess he went out like a champion too. You know, he, uh, he died like, doing what he loves. Yeah. He died doing what he loves. Exactly. Um, yeah. So then, uh, so then our hero, uh, she, she cleans herself off. Uh, we don't know what happened to the cat, but I think the cat just oh. stayed hidden. <laughs> I haven't mentioned the cat earlier, but Geraldine actually had a cat who played an important role at certain points. And then uh, she, she also, the cat also hisses and warns, warns them about Danny. Uh, so the cat did its best. The cat tried. Uh, we'll have to do a whole episode on the cat later on. Um, I, I think I'll just say now my peak fear in watching this movie was about the cat. So help me if that cat got sure. killed or was possessed, I yeah. I probably would have turned it off. Yeah. I know I did have the thought that maybe the cat exploded or caught fire when the collector exploded as a demon. Yeah. But maybe not. I may I think maybe the cat would have stayed hidden in the attic and then that attic seems really sturdy for some reason. It survived a bunch of grenades. And yeah. <laughs> I'm guessing it survived a demon exploded. So that cat is still out there uh, roaming the deserts of New Mexico, just 
you know, taking naps and, and getting pet and li living a great life. That's, that's my headcanon for that cat. Same. I subscribe. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Very good. And then at the end, uh, we see, uh, uh, Geraldine is just, um, I keep saying, I'm not sure if it's Gerilyn or Geraldine, but uh, one of those, either way, she's the demon knight now. She's the hero. So she is, she gets on a bus and she seals the bus. And then, uh, and then we see a, a new demon come and, um, and then he sees, like, he must see somehow that, that there's a seal on the door. He can sense it. And then he says, nah, I'll take the next one. And then there's some like cool rock and roll music and the bus drives off. And then our hero just kind of looks for a little bit and then just goes on with her life. She's, she's not, not too concerned about it at that time. I think demons can travel and get to other bus stops, but uh, she's, she's not too worried about it at that time. And, uh, and then we assume that she's just out there, um, uh, just uh, running from demons, saving the universe, and um, uh, I don't know, just just doing doing her best, living living her best life. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and then, well, any 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 final thoughts before we get to uh, what we could do for them, just as therapists or uh, sure. Uh, okay. Well, I was thinking about you know when I was earlier saying that yeah you know she got her freedom she got to travel and and you made the very good point like well <laughs> and she has this the responsibility of the human world on her shoulders <laughs> and i was like ah shoot you're right about that <laughs> um but maybe there, there's some way that we could make sense of this you yeah. know kind of that freedom and responsibility are not mm. antithetical to each other yeah. if we take a book out of like dbt dialectical behavior therapy that holding things in tension with each mm -hmm. other is kind of a, a lot of what we are called to do in life. And so she's, she's navigating this tension between freedom and responsibility. And there you go. There's a, a shoehorned something that makes sense. Yeah. Of it somehow. <laughs> yeah. so we don't, we don't know how she feels about it. I mean, at, at the beginning, she, I think she did, protest she did resist the call and said you know i'm yeah. not cut out for this i'm not the right person yeah. for this and breaker says you're exactly the right person for this you didn't give into the temptation um and, and in some ways so I, I can see both sides of that because she's not uh she's not like a martial artist she's not uh, a navy seal you know um the collector is kind of um grabbing her and uh, throwing her around. So it's not that she has these physical abilities, um, but when he tries to tempt her, she is resilient in the face of that temptation. She doesn't give in. So sort of on that kind of mental, emotional level, she's the right person. And then whatever skills she needs to develop, she can develop along the way. Uh, whereas Breaker was a World War One soldier, so he had those skills, and then um, um, uh, maybe he had other things that he needed to develop. So, so we don't know. At first, she resists the call, but every hero does. Every hero resists the call at first. Uh, so maybe, maybe she ended up really enjoying that trip to 
Arizona or wherever wherever she went after after fleeing New Mexico. Definitely Arizona. <laughs> yeah. So what what would you what do you think about as a therapist? Like who would you want to help or or if you were tasked with working with this group or any individuals, what what are your yeah. thoughts? Yeah. Well, I'll I'll kind of tack on to the two therapy type thoughts that I was saying earlier. Like you could think about working with these individuals as a group, sort of moderating them as a group psychotherapy bunch, which I think would be great. Uh, group psychotherapy can be a really powerful experience, um, different than a support group. So a support group would be like you're there to encourage one another to offer support. Um, and a facilitator would not necessarily do too much to sort of um, tell them what they do and, and that kind of thing. They might offer a few comments here and there, moderate the interactions. What I would think about for this group would be a process group mm. where you're actually doing therapy together, where you, you come together as a group for individual problems, but you use the relationships with one mm. another to offer feedback, to understand each other better, learn interpersonal skills. And I think this group, that would be excellent. I cannot recommend group psychotherapy as an experience enough. It is extremely vulnerable. Sure. Um, but if you're open to it, it can be really, really powerful. Um, and and yeah, just, just a wonderful therapeutic experience. So there's that. At an individual level, I would dig into what I said earlier about relating to one's needs, pain, longing, right? That... It's more about something that you acknowledge for yourself and come to terms with rather than going along this line of thinking that your your needs are the things that will be weaponized against you, that uh, we, we can find ways to be aware of our suffering, share our suffering with other people, and that it's in doing that that we can meet our needs most effectively. Um, so I would that, would that would just be sort of a plug for... Yeah. Yeah, self-compassion, empathy, yeah. vulnerability, things like that. And just a framework for thinking about yeah. how we relate to those things. So that's that was probably my two cents. What yeah, do you think? Nice. Well, um, I think um, in some ways I can kind of count on the collector. He's really good at noticing what people's core fears are or in what ways they're vulnerable. And then he targets that. So then I would kind of listen to him and then help people with with those things like he kind of targeted cordelia as unlovable and lonely so if cordelia were in therapy then helping her to form connections like healthy connections with people and helping her to um, challenge that thought that um you know maybe it's not true that she's unlovable you know let's reflect on that so just kind of working on those different issues that the collector already noticed uh, would be a, a good, a good thing to keep in mind. Um, I didn't talk about that much about Danny. Uh, so now I think I just to mention him real quick, because I, I, I always wondered, man, what, what did the collector do to tempt him? And we don't get to know, but when I think about Danny, he just lost his parents a few hours ago. And now there's, a hellscape just a few feet away from him and he's kind of retreating inward and just staring at a comic book and um 
I'm guessing that maybe the collector tempted him by saying, I could be a superhero for you. I can keep you safe. I can be kind of like a father figure or a parent for you. Mm -hmm. um, we don't get to see that for sure, but that's, that's kind of my guess. So really, I mean, getting Danny connected to, um, you know, some kind of family member, hopefully he has an uncle or an aunt or, or a family friend, um, giving him that safety of just having a home. Cause right now he's surrounded by demons and, you know, everything feels very unsafe. So just giving him some kind of sense of safety or helping him to find a sense of safety. Uh, and then from a more of a sports psychology perspective, I really liked that Breaker was kind of calm and cool and pragmatic for the most part. Everything that he suggested to people uh, was pretty much common sense. You know, you're in the house. Let's stay in the house. Like, oh, there's a creature who just walked into the house, a cat. You know what? Cats can also be possessed by demons. Let me check if the cat is possessed by a demon. So for the most part, he's really doing all the simple things that just make sense. Um, and so I like that about him. He's not trying anything really risky. He's not um, um, being impulsive, taking chances that aren't necessary. He's being very pragmatic, very thoughtful. If I had to suggest one thing for him, more communication could have been really helpful. So he's sort of like the team captain or the team leader, and he tells them a little bit. Like as soon as um, the collector kind of makes his big entrance and all the demons show up, Breaker does tell them, we need to stay in here, we're safe, we need to survive the night. He's going to try to tempt us, but as long as they're out there, we're okay. He says something like that, probably in way fewer words, but he does kind of say that. And then if he could have really laid it out for them and said, you know, hey, let's, let's all stay in the same room. Let's all talk to each other, keep an eye on each other. He's going to get inside your mind and he's going to tempt you with something that you would be most tempted by. He's going to know what your vulnerability is and he's going to attack it. Let's all stay here. Let's all support each other. That could have been really helpful. And also he immediately saw that Roach was a problem because Roach told him right away. Roach just said, let's just give him Breaker. Let's, you know, who cares? So I'm not sure how Breaker could have handled that. He could have just shot Roach and killed him, or he could have locked him into a room. And then if, if Roach gets tempted, he could just be a demon in that room. Um, so I'm not sure what he could have done to solve the roach problem but and roaches are very resilient as you know so uh but he could have done he could have done more to address that problem uh but that's I, I think that's that's it for the most part it's all very simple communication and solve the the roach problem that's great <laughs> stamp stamp of approval i love it <laughs> Thanks. All right. So I think I think that covers it. All right. <laughs> Dr. Taylor, F, clinical psychologist and doctor of horror. It's a pleasure having you on. Let's do this again sometime. Let's do it. Thank you. All right. Thanks. Bye. 
This has been Movie House Sports Psychology. Find me on Instagram or Twitter using my handle at CBT Sports Psych. And tell me what you think. Thanks for listening. Thank you.